The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us uh, continue, and actually not really continue, but uh, do the Q&A. And today you're really, <laughs> this is much better, this is more like it, there's a real kind of big bunch of questions here, which is great, uh, because it means that you are involved, and it's good when people are involved, uh, because it means that you're more kind of, you know, you're part of it, yeah? It's not kind of passive entertainment, it is involvement in what is happening, which is great. So let's start straight away. Hi Ajahn, even though I'm trying to live in the present as a result of uh, bad past experience, I feel not confident, insecure about the future. Please explain how to use Dhamma to feel confident, secure about the future. Many thanks. So remember the future is not what you have done in the past. The future is how you live now, what you make out of uh, the present moment uh, and what also you do as time kind of passes by here. Uh, so uh, things are not never fixed, uh, things are never set in concrete or in stone or anything like that. Uh, it is how you live in the present moment. And that is a beautiful way of thinking about meditation as well. Uh, yeah, it is um, in, a, in a sense in every action you do, this you actually create the future uh, by how you meditate now. You don't really create the future by fantasizing or thinking about the future. Uh, that is usually a waste of time uh, because the future is so unpredictable. If you want to create a good future, uh, it is how you act now, how you think now, whether you live with kindness and care, whether you kind of get rid of your defilements or whatever, that is what decides your future. Uh, yeah, this is basically the idea of kamma, the idea of uh, feeling good about what, how we live our lives. Uh, so that is uh, one way of thinking about it. Uh, one of the important teachings of the Buddha is about how we dilute our past actions. Uh, the very famous simile of the grain of salt and the Buddha, uh, many of you will have heard this before, it's a very kind of well-known simile. But the idea is that if you have a small glass of water, like this cup of water over here, and you put some salt in that water, even if it's just a small amount, it will be very salty. Yeah, a teaspoon of salt in this one is going to be incredibly salty. Yeah. So it's not so, and that symbolizes the small amount of good kamma you have done is the water, and the bad kamma symbolizes the uh, bad kamma. So the salt symbolizes the bad kamma, and because of that, the result is very bitter, very unpleasant. But if you put the same amount of salt, the same amount of bad karma in a large container like a pond or something like that, uh, you will barely be able to notice the salt. So in this way we dilute the effects of our bad actions. Uh, so live well now, by living well now you are reducing the effects of your bad actions in the future. Uh, we say in Buddhism you can never wipe out your bad actions, which I suppose is true, not maybe not entirely true because uh, once you reach kind of awakening stages, then things uh, uh, you are really starting to wipe things out. But until that point, you don't really wipe it out, but you don't have to. Uh, all you have to do is really dilute it to the point where you can barely experience it anymore. Uh, that is good enough. Uh, so in this way, you gain confidence for the future. Uh, confidence really comes from living well. The better you live well, the better you 
just feel about everything, including the future. Yeah, it's like if you have a, a lot of meta, for example, you don't feel death anymore because death, you know, you, it's like you feel that nothing ca bad can happen to you. It's almost like you experience that. It feels like whatever is going to happen when you die is going to be positive, regardless of what it is. You become a fearless person. So develop that kindness, develop it in a deep way so it really has to do with metta, with how you uh, look at other people, all of those things, and your confidence would increase as a consequence of that. So uh, see if that helps. Okay, dear Venerable, you mentioned today about Katina ceremony and sending merits to the departed. Isn't donating of robes at Katina supposed to be meritorious? I want to do that for my deceased parents. How else can I send merit to them? Second part of the question, is that how to give dana to monks besides giving aid to the monastery? In some countries, people, lay people offer gifts to the Thai monks at the end of the retreat. Is it possible here? <laughs> okay, now the craving can arise when the ball you can start. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, messing around. Um, first of all, what I meant about the uh, katina was not so much that you shouldn't offer robes at the katina. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing to do, especially if the robes are needed. Uh, it re but my point is to investigate what is required. <laughs> Uh, just to let you know how things work at Bodhinana Monastery. Bodhinana Monastery is our monastery in Perth, yeah, in Serpentine. We have so many robes uh, that it's absolutely outrageous. We're kind of stored up in big piles. Uh, so a few years ago, we decided that there's no point for lay people to get more robes for the monastery. We just have to need a big, build a bigger storeroom. Then you have to donate for a bigger storeroom, yeah? And it kind of becomes really silly as a consequence. Uh, so what we decided to do is to recycle the robes. So we take the old robes we have, we give them to the lay people, then they buy, in quotes, they buy those old robes from us, give them to the monks, they go back into the same pile again, another person buys the same robe, and it goes round and round. But we do that on purpose. We do that. Everybody knows about it. Yeah. So it's more like a... A gesture, it's a feeling. We're not trying to trick anyone. Huh? It's just a gesture so that you can offer the robe. You can be part of that ceremony. Huh? Yeah. So the point is just to do something that is worthwhile. Use your intelligence. Use your uh, investigative faculties to know what is required. It is a better karma yeah, when you do that uh, because it means that you are putting more intention into it. Uh, you're actually doing something which actually is useful to people. The Buddha says this in the suttas. He talks about a gift that is kalena. Kala is partly for time. Kalena means timely. Yeah, you do it at a at a timely occasion. In other words, when it is required. So this is an important part of the act of generosity. Yeah? So please don't you know don't take this the wrong way because if you do, the worst thing you can do as a monk is to take away people's opportunity to give. That would be really terrible. In fact, I'm supposed to you know, support you in giving, please give. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good to give. It's marvelous to give. And whoever you give to, it's a positive thing. Yeah. So this is uh, one of the aspects of uh, morality is that not only do you live morally yourself, uh, you also encourage other people in morality. Yeah. It's actually an aspect of morality to encourage others. Uh, yeah, you speak in praise of morality. You speak in praise of generosity and all of these kind of things. Uh. 
So, uh, yes, giving the Katina a robe is marvelous, especially if it is needed. <laughs> and um, so, and yes, every time you do an act of generosity, please share that with your departed parents, wherever they might be. Yeah, mom and dad, wherever you are. My father passed away a couple of years ago. Wherever you are, dad, I'm doing this for you. For you, act of generosity, act of kindness. It's a beautiful thing we do in Buddhism. And if they are reborn in a certain realm, it depends where they are reborn, according to the suttas, they will be able to receive that. And if they are not reborn in that realm, then someone else in your family will receive it who are reborn there. And then the Brahmin Janusoni, he asked the Buddha, well, what if no one in my family is reborn there? And the Buddha said, that's impossible, uh, because uh, we have so many family members yeah, over such a long time in the past. Uh, there's bound to be someone in your family reborn in that realm. Uh, so someone will always uh, receive the benefit of your kindness, uh, which is great. Uh, so it's never wasted. Uh, and you gain more merit that well, way as well. Yeah, If you are kind to your parents or departed, obviously you are also making merit at the same time. So it's kind of what they call the win-win. Buddhism is all about win-win. There's no such thing as a zero-sum game in Buddhism. Everything is a positive-sum game for all parties. Um, so uh, giving to the monks, the best way to do is just to ask them if there's anything they require. A lot of monks would say, I don't require anything, or the things that I require are not, cannot be given. You know, I think if I say, oh, I could do with a bit more samadhi, what are you going to do? You can't really, you know, <laughs> you can't do very much with that. So, um, <laughs> so, so the best thing to do is, yeah, ask, yeah, if there's anything. And uh, sometimes there may be things that can be handy. Yeah, yeah there's always things happening in the monk, even in the monk's life, there are things happening, sometimes too much, unfortunately. But um, so there's, you know, ask. It's better than just to give blindly. Yeah. And then we might be able to point you towards something positive. Huh? <laughs> I, I shouldn't say everything is positive in giving. Huh? Something more useful, I should say. Huh? <laughs> you have to be careful what you say sometimes. Oh, things coming out of your mouth too fast. What was that? <laughs> oh, that's why people are laughing. Okay. <laughs> I didn't actually ask for this. This is just... Uh, this is a quite a brand new computer, but I was just, uh, I don't know, someone said, oh, do you need a new computer? But my E, I had a previous laptop, the E didn't work. So I couldn't press the E. The E is the most useful of all letters, yes? The E didn't work, so I had to kind of do workarounds. So people said, oh, maybe you could do with a new laptop. Went, hmm, yeah, maybe. And then it just happened. That's how, this is actually a very nice way of getting a gift, yeah, someone observes that you need something and then it just happens. It's actually very beautiful. Don't have to ask for very much as a monk, usually, which is great. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned that right view will only firm up when you become a stream enterer. Before that, isn't, isn't it one should have some degree of blind faith? Yes. Uh, faith is always going to be blind to some extent. Yeah. But the idea is to make that faith less blind and more based on real confidence. And the way you do that is to read the word of the Buddha, to see, get a feeling for who the Buddha was as a person, to see the integrity of the teachings, uh, to see, you know, to get a, get a feeling for what he was talking about. Uh, and as you do that, uh, it kind of becomes obvious, not, not, maybe not obvious, but it becomes 
tangible that these teachings are special. Yeah, and only a special person can give these kind of teachings consistently the same from different angles over a long period of time. There are very impressive teachings in the Pali Canon. And uh, so this is one way. The other way, of course, is that you start doing these things and you start to feel that they work. You get some results in your meditation. So yes, there is a degree of blind faith, especially with some of the things like ideas of rebirth, uh, even deep meditation. You don't really know that there can be deep meditation before you get there, although, you know, it kind of makes sense. So yes, but then gradually, less and less blind, more and more more and more vision, more and more dasana, yeah, less and less blindness in that. Uh. So you build it up. But you're right, there is some degree of blindness there. But th that's not the Buddhist ideal. Uh. The ideal is not to have blind faith. Uh. The ideal is to have faith that actually is seeing. Uh. Faith based on wisdom and understanding. That's the Buddhist ideal. Uh. Okay. Dear Ajahn, can you please elaborate a bit more on the self and non-self ideas and how one should perceive oneself during meditation? Thank you. Uh, so, self is a... This is an idea that arises out of Indian religions. Yeah, Going back to the time of the Buddha, it comes from the word Atman, in uh, the Hindu tradition or the Brahmanical tradition. Uh, and the idea, the word self, is really a translation of that term. It's called Atta in Pali, Atman in Sanskrit. Uh, so it is a very specific term. And what it means really is this idea that there is some permanent essence to a human being. Uh, and that permanent essence can be taken to exist in different places. Uh, yeah, I mentioned before today it can be uh, seen to exist in the doer. I am the doer. Uh, yeah, I'm the doer in this world. This is the real me. And this is one of the most profound aspects of the illusion of a self. Even more profound is it can be the sense of knowing. I am the person who knows, who is aware, yeah, who kind of take in, takes in all of this information, all of this reality. That is me. That is who I am. But it can also be more superficial. It can be just the feeling that I, this is what I feel like. This is me. Yeah? It's kind of a mixture of factors. You can't really, it's a bit kind of indeterminate what they are. A bit of perception, a bit of feelings, a bit of various things kind of mashed together. And that is the me. Yeah? Yeah? And so, so that is the idea of self. We take some aspect in here to be who I am. And we regard that somehow to be permanent. And that's why we suffer when it changes, because we think this is me. So when it changes, you feel bad. Yeah, you feel terrible. You feel it's not nice. That's why dying is somehow scary, because you have to give up things. The body is mine. We take it to be something belonging to us. So um, the idea in meditation practice is that you gradually let go of the sense of self. Yeah, and uh, the sense of self uh, expresses itself in so many different ways. One way is, in all, is all the verbalization, the thinking that we do. You will see you often think about yourself. Uh, you think about your, you know, about your job, about your reputation, about what if someone says something un not nice to you, you think, wow, why did I do that? Uh, that's the sense of self, uh, trying to feel validated. Yeah? You don't want to be talked negatively about. Uh, so the sense of self expresses it in all of these different ways. In the one of the suttas, uh, 
in the Anguttara Nikaya 3s, which I sometimes read out on these retreats, uh, is called the Pangsudovaka Sutta, the Earth Remover Sutta. And it is about how you refine gold. Yeah? And it talks about the refinement of gold. First of all, you clear out the bad defilements like the rocks and the earth or whatever. Then you clear out the middling defilements like the sand or, or the refined stuff. Uh, then there's kind of the really fine defilements like the dust or whatever it is. Uh, and then it compares this to the refinement of the mind. You start off with the coarse defilements, then the middling defilements and the fine defilements. Uh, and the finest defilements in the sequence are the things that have to do with the ego, yeah? Your reputation, your nationality, yeah? your, your family, these kind of things. And these are all very closely related to our sense of self. Yeah, reputation, obviously. Your nationality, perhaps, yeah? If someone says something bad about Australia, how would you feel? I wouldn't feel anything. I'm, I'm barely Australian, but I don't know if some of you would feel something bad about that. And uh, so we identify these networks of identity that we have. Uh, yeah? And so we feel bad if someone challenges some aspect of that identity. Yeah? And so we often defend that, and we defend that also in our meditation. That's sometimes why it can be hard to stop thinking, because we are letting down that defense mechanism, and we need something to take its place. And that something is the bliss and the happiness of meditation practice. Yeah? So we're substituting one something for something preferable. So uh, you don't really have to do this all that, um, uh, you, you know, all that uh, consciously uh, to let go of the sense of self. It happens almost automatically. Uh, if you live well, you do the right thing, uh, you will tend towards the happiness of the spiritual life. Uh, why? Because it is a higher kind of happiness. You will recognize it as preferable. Uh, and you will start to see that the ego is just actually is a pain in the backside. Uh, because it just, you know, it it kind of it always gets in the way of peace, always gets in the way of all of these beautiful things. So that enables you gradually to let go of the ego. And this is a beautiful insight to have, uh, to see that the abandoning of the sense of self actually is something very positive and very happy. Yeah. This is how you see that in your meditation. It sounds otherwise Buddhism can sound very scary. Yeah, what do you mean I have to let go of my sense of self? Uh, that's terrible. Yeah, this is kind of my life. This is who I am. But that's just an intellectual idea. It may sound scary on paper, but in actual practice, it's delightful. Yeah, this is the reality of it. So go to the reality instead. Experience that gradual giving up, which happens in meditation. Don't try it consciously, because consciously you can't really do it. Allow it to happen naturally through the process of calming and stilling things down. And then you get, once you start to get the feel for that, you think, wow, this is great. And then you extrapolate into the future and you can start to see why giving up the entire sense of self is going to be very, a very positive experience. Okay, so I hope that makes sense of how to perceive yourself. Don't really think about yourself at all during meditation. Thinking about oneself is always a negative thing yeah it's always self-concern is not what meditation is about uh, just forget about yourself entirely and just kind of focus on the breath or on loving kindness or whatever yeah. okay so dear Adan, thank you for your teachings how do we differentiate the desire for non-existence from vibhava tanha uh, this basically desire for non-existence is the same as vibhava tanha. Don't desire non-existence. Uh, 
Uh, if you design non-existence too much, you end up committing suicide. And it doesn't work. That's the problem with suicide. You commit suicide and then you uh, continue on the other, the other end. So it's kind of problematic. So that's why we never recommend suicide in Buddhism. Because uh, you are giving up the opportunity now to deal with the problems. So the Buddhist idea is the idea of ending of things. Yeah, And uh, you don't really... You don't really need to desire it so much. You just start to see after a while this is, you know, ending of things is delightful. I was just talking just now about the things ending in meditation, your mind calming down, having less thoughts, there are certain feelings coming to an end. This is when the Anapanasati Sutta is all about the ending of things, one thing after the other ending. And as you see that, you see that these things are all non-self, because when something ends, it must be non-self. So you just delight in the ending of things. You start to understand why the ending of things is beautiful. But um, don't try to desire non-existence, because uh, it's very hard to really understand what it is, unless you see understand the non-self illusion. As long as we have a sense of self, there will be a vested interest in that sense of self. And that vested interest will block you from being able to understand what cessation really means. So you have to go beyond that sense of self to understand why cessation is a positive thing. Isn't that hard to understand? How can ending, cessation, everything be positive? Well, you know, you have to actually... Um, go go beyond the sense of self again to be able to understand that because uh, we are blocked by this massive vested interest uh, that is there blocking our way, blocking our sight. Uh, that is why stream entry is such an important point. Uh, so, um, okay, so vibhava tanha, yeah, for those of you who don't understand, tanha is craving, vibhava is non bhava is existence, vibhava is non existence, which means craving for non existence. Uh, and uh, it is one of the bad things according to the suttas uh, because whatever you desire is like a projection into the future and for that reason it creates more rebirth. Okay, respected Ajahn, today you were talking about non-self being the right viewer. If there is no self, who is responsible for kama? And who is bearing the fruits of the kama? You also mentioned yesterday about conditioning, causing events in our life over which we have no control. Does this mean other than exercising sampajanya sati, etc., we pretty much are not responsible for unwholesome emotions that we feel at times? Warm regards. So who is responsible for the kama? And uh, the Buddha said, that is not the right question to ask. Yeah? If you ask who, you're already implying that there is something there which is responsible. So kamma are actions. Kamma, creating a kamma is itself an impersonal process. There is no who that is creating the kamma. It is happening yeah, just in daily life. Sometimes you have intentions. Are they your intentions? Where do those intentions come from sometimes? Maybe you get one day suddenly feel all this love for the whole world. Yeah, sometimes life is like that. You feel this enormous sense of beautiful sense of uh, kindness towards everyone. Another day you may feel really grumpy. Why do you feel those emotions? Is it because you choose to feel like that? 
Of course not. If you chose to feel like that, you would feel love all the time. You feel ki kindness all the time. It's the very fact that you cannot choose, which shows you yeah, that you're not really in charge. If we were in charge of our feelings, our emotions, and our intentions, we would feel the right thing all the time. The fact that you are not shows that there is no, uh, real, no one really in charge there. So, um, karma happens. Intentions still have fruit. Yeah, And the what is responsible is if you want to have any responsibility nobody is really responsible it is just a way that the five khandas express themselves they express themselves by making bad kamma or good kamma yeah through intentions that's what they do unfortunately yeah and then we and then we and then who suffers the consequences well it's the five khandas who is the five what is the five khandas well it's you yeah that's what you are so you have to experience the results of the five khandas who is the you? Five khandas. There's no, there's no one apart from that. Yeah, this is kind of the... But the reason you ask is because it feels like me. And that is where the problem arises. It is just this process carrying on. Yeah, and that, that process has a certain continuity to it. The stream of consciousness carrying on from one life to the next one. Within that stream of consciousness, there is the making of kamma. And there's also the experiencing of results. It doesn't mean that there is a permanent entity which experiences it. It's just a stream of consciousness experiencing itself. You can call that you if you like, that stream of consciousness, because it's not somebody else, that's for sure. You can call it you as long as you don't make the mistake of thinking of it as a permanent thing. Here. Okay, 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 okay. That's my favorite saying, is that okay, okay. Quite, quite cute, isn't it? Okay, okay. You know who says okay, okay? Sorry? I don't know, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Is it, is it one of the, my favorite monks in Thailand, Ajahn Ganha? He says, okay, okay. Ajahn Ganha, okay, you go to this monk. He's very sweet. Many people say he's an arahant. I don't know if it's very hard to know if someone is an arahant or not, but, uh, and, but he's this super duper, lots of metta, super sweet. And then he says, Okay, okay. <laughs> it's very lovable. Uh, and uh, anyway, so I'm, I guess I'm trying. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't try to pretend to be Ajanganha. <laughs> so, does that mean, other than exercising sampajanya, sati, etc., we pretty much are not responsible for the unwholesome emotions that we feel at times? Uh, yeah, you're not really responsible. Yeah, you cannot really blame yourself. In fact, it is not useful to blame yourself. Sometimes if we take ourselves to be responsible, we blame ourselves. Yeah, And then we say, no, I'm bad, I'm evil, I'm a really terrible person. Why do I think these things? That is usually the consequence of taking responsibility. Guilt. It's not useful. Once you feel guilty about these things, uh, then you tend to, you, often you blot out your thoughts. You don't really want, you want to see what's there. Your mind gets messed up. You lose your clarity. Uh, instead uh, of doing that, it's much better to say, okay, this is happening. Uh, yeah? It's because of my past conditioning. Uh, sometimes I can't stop myself from getting angry. Isn't that right? If we could stop ourselves, surely we would never get angry. It's the very fact that we can't stop ourselves that shows that these things are non-self. Yes, the idea of a self means the idea of being in charge. You have control over things. If you can't control something, by definition, it is non-self. So it proves the point that you're not in charge of uh, these emotions. 
So, but and when you are cool about these things, I would say, yeah, I'm getting angry. This is really unwholesome. I don't want to get angry. Why is it happening? And then you understand why it is happening. You can do do something about it with a cool outlook, rather than getting involved in an emotionally unhealthy way, which blocks your ability to deal with these things. So you stand, you're cool instead, and you say, it's happening for this reason. It's because I'm looking at this person in this way. Why am I looking at this person this way? Yeah, it's like your family members, they may, they may upset you because of the way they are. But then one day you realize, my family members are just like other people. They have their own history, they have their own conditioning, they have their own background. I need to be able to forgive them, just like I forgive everyone else. They don't really want to be bad, they don't want to be angry, they don't want to do the wrong things. They can't help themselves. They are trapped in their own personality. I like that idea of being trapped in your personality. Sometimes we are proud of our personality, but actually we are trapped in our personalities. And sometimes that means negative things. So yes, we use Sati Sampajanya to help us, yeah, to reduce the problems in life. We use that clarity of the mind, the ability to direct the mind in the right way. We use that. But it doesn't mean there is a self there. It just means that these are factors of the mind that arise if we practice in the right way. It's important to get this idea of self, non-self right. Yeah, I mean, you are still there. You are still a person, but you're not exactly the kind of person that you think you are. That is the problem. Okay. Dear Ajahn, with reference to the Mahachatarisaka Sutta, there is no reference to the Four Noble Truths in the explanation of right view, right intention. Could you explain why this is so, given these are the two wisdom factors of the Noble Eightfold Path? Okay. Uh, facts, question number two is about jhana. So let's let's look at that one first of all. Why is that so? Well, because wisdom can be defined in many ways. It doesn't mean that it does not involve the Four Noble Truths. It probably does, because the Four Noble Truths are just, you know, these are different ways of talking about the same kind of insight and wisdom. So, for example, when we talked about, you know, the the explanation that there is what is given, there is what is offered, there is what is sacrificed. Yeah, There is fruits and results of good and bad actions. There is this world, there's the other world, there's mother, there's father, spontaneously arisen being. There are uh, recluses and Brahmins in the world, good recluses and Brahmins who have seen with their own insight uh, this world and the other world. Yeah, That's basically what it is. That actually is very similar to the Four Noble Truths. If you pull it apart, it is not that different. It talks about this world and the other world. Yeah, that is in a way a, a particular way of looking at uh, uh, dukkha. Yeah, these things are about dukkha. Some of the other things are have to do with the practice of the path. There is what is given. There is what fruit and results of bad actions. Uh, they have to do with the arising of dukkha, uh, fruits and results of bad actions. How does it come about? Perpetuating the rebirth process, perpetuating sangsara. So it may not look like there is. It is the Four Noble Truths, but actually there's a lot of similarity there, a lot of overlap. This is exactly what you would expect. And um, the other definition there of right view, I think, is def definition as the wisdom faculty. Yeah, The wisdom faculty, the power of wisdom, the path factor of right view, etc. Yeah, that is how it is defined there. 
Let me just bring, bring it out so I don't kind of lead you astray here by saying things which are not right. I'll just make sure I get this. Ex- ah, it's, it's here, of course. I don't have to go into, into that one. Yeah, thank you. That's what I have you. F- you can be my secretary at any time. You can. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, exactly that's what it says. Yeah, so the right view is the wisdom, the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the investigation of states, enlightenment factor, the path factor of right view, and the path factor of right view, what is that? It is the Four Noble Truths, that's how it's defined in the suttas. So it's right there, Yeah, it's included in that. The path factor of right view means the Noble Eightfold Path, the first one is right view, look at the definition, so that's always defined as the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, so it actually is there. It's just that it is expressed in a different language, in a different way. So it seems like it is absent. And this is one of the skills of the Buddha, is precisely that ability to show the same thing from different angles. This is kind of the point of of many of his teachings. To see things from different angles, after a while it broadens out your understanding, your insight of what is going on. Same thing with the Four Noble Truths. It's important to understand those in the right way. We may talk about that later on. First Noble Truth of Suffering. What exactly does it mean? Well, what does it mean in your our life? Well, it means that acting immorally is suffering. That's one thing it means. Yeah, It means that the sensory realm is not to be relied on. That's actually one of the things. You have to extract that from the Four Noble Truths to be able to see it. But it is there if you look in the right way. And these are very powerful truths because these are things that each one of us can relate to and should relate to to be able to practice this path fully. Okay, number two, factors of jhana, vitaka vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata. Could these, specifically the first two factors, be used as reflective tools to guide the mind? Vitaka and vichara. Uh, vitaka, in vi- vitaka is thought, usually translated as thought. Vichara can be translated as investigation, the mind kind of moving, investigating. And uh, these words are very broad. They are used in many different contexts. So vitaka can mean thinking in certain contexts, but in the context of the first jhana, it does not mean that. Yeah, so we have to remember that any word or any kind of mental quality can exist in a vast, uh, ver- to varying degrees, from very coarse thinking to very refined thinking. What is the most refined thinking of all? The most refined thinking is what you call the movement of the mind. Yeah, the initial movement of the mind that allows thinking to arise later on. So in the first jhana, it is only that very last remnant of movement of the mind that is there. Second jhana, the mind is absolutely still. Samadhi born of samadhi. Uh, vitaka vichara comes to a complete end. Abhitaka, avichara. Uh, um, yeah. So uh, it is the very last remnant of that. So it's not really useful to think of the jhana factors in that way because it, it is misleading as to what they mean. But uh, yes, vitaka and vichara as coarser factors in more ordinary speech outside of the jhanas, they can, of course, be reflective tools, but not in the, the way they are used in the first jhana. Yeah? 
And reflection, I should say, though, is, you're right, is very, very important in Buddhism. Yeah, this is kind of a lot of our understanding of the teachings come out of reflecting wisely. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, many thanks for the teachings. Many monks talk a lot about cosmology and deva realm, something which I find inspirational and interesting here. Can some monks actually converse with the devas and see beings in lower and higher realms? Thank you. Sure, of course they. Yeah, absolutely. Of course they can. Yeah, this is kind of this is what is interesting. You're right. It is kind of interesting, isn't it? You see devas and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I say sometimes you talk to people, and I don't know if you probably heard some of Ajahn Brahm's ghost stories. Does he tell ghost stories here when he comes here? Yeah, <laughs> he loves ghost stories. Yeah, and. Uh, and sometimes people are really afraid of ghosts, and especially in some Buddhist cultures. And I don't know, in Thai culture, I don't know that much about Thai culture, but I know that generally when you grow up as a child, you are fed on a regular diet of ghost stories. And of course, you are really scared of ghosts because you hear all these ghost stories from you are a tiny child. And so... It becomes very scary, yeah. And sometimes Thai monks they don't really want to meditate in cemeteries at night, that sort of stuff, because they're just too afraid of ghosts to do that. Like, I guess it depends on the monk, but uh, very commonly they are afraid of these things. But actually, seeing a ghost, you should feel so happy if you can see a ghost. Yeah, welcome ghost, please come and visit me. That's what you should say here, because these things they give you access to a different world. Yeah, you see something larger. The majority of people don't have access to that world. That world is beyond them. They have to take it on faith. But if you see something, uh, you know, it's not super, uh, super normal, not not um, uh, supernatural, super normal. You can maybe call it beyond the normal experience. It expands your uh, appreciation of what the world is about. And that is very fortunate uh, because it gives you. A, an outlook which is more in line with the suttas, with the Buddha's outlook, yeah? and it gives an appreciation of what actually is out there. So it's marvelous, yeah, it's wonderful to be able to see that. Uh, and uh, do monks see this thing? Yes, monks see these things. Monks see devas sometimes, uh, yeah, in the meditation. Uh, I know monks who see devas in the meditation. Uh, so uh, these things happen, and yes, of course, it is useful to uh, to do this. Uh, if you read about the Buddha in the suttas. Uh, he specifically said that this is what he does as well. Yeah, he goes to the various realms, then he converses with the devas in the various realms, and he finds out what kamma led to that uh, going to that plane, and he kind of gets a full understanding of the Buddhist cosmos, the Buddhist cosmology. That is kind of one of the things he does, and it's almost part of his awakening experience. So yes, I agree with you. These things are absolutely important. Are they? Critical for practicing the path? Maybe not, uh, but uh, certainly interesting here. Okay. So, next one. Dear Ajahn, I have suffered from a chronic disease of the mind for many years. Self-doubt-itis. <laughs> well, that sounds really bad. Uh, yeah, oh, self-doubt-itis. Okay. Despite having achieved many great opportunities and results in the world, everything eventually burns to the ground from the fire of my own fear of not being able to perform and self-doubt. How can I overcome this? 
Hmm. Don't know. <laughs> I have doubt about this. <clears throat> um, what you have to do is just have to focus more, I think, on the spiritual life. Uh, yeah, on all the things that really matter in life. Uh, and uh, yes, you can very well have doubt about your ability to perform because performance is so uncertain. Uh, yeah, you go into the world and then you perform to your best and it doesn't have the result that you want. Uh, we never know the results of our actions. We never know whether we're going to be uh, given that pay rise or that promotion or whether we're going to succeed in our projects. You never know and you can never know. The results are always going to be uncertain. So from that point of view, you have very good reasons to have doubt. You never know whether other people are going to appreciate you. How can that be possible? You know, how can you possibly know these things? People, even if you are the best person in the world, you're the best employee in the company, people may still not appreciate you because this is the world. The world is uncertain. So if you try to be free from doubt in that realm, it's impossible. There are very good grounds for having doubt in that realm. So instead, you move towards the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, you don't need to have that kind of doubt because in the spiritual realm, you are in charge. You know what you're doing. You can be kind and you can see the results of that straight away in your life. You can be in charge of your mind to some extent, thinking kind thoughts, having compassion, giving up the defilements of the mind. Yeah, it's in the uh, each one of us has that capability. Then your doubt will start to disappear. But in the world, you should always have doubt. Never practice. This is one of those beautiful stories. I, I told this once in a talk at the Maloka Center because it's such a beautiful story. I find, and this is a the Ajahn Brahm. In 1991, we had this big bushfire coming through Bodhinyana Monastery here. Yeah. This was before I came to the monastery and before Ajahn Nisarano came to the monastery as well, I think. Yeah. You had, when was you, you, did you first come to Bodhinyana? 94? No, 86. 86? Wow. Okay, wow. You are, you are ancient, Venerable. You you you've been around for, <laughs> for ages. <laughs> okay, well, good on you for, for being around for so long. You weren't staying. But, okay, that was almost the very beginning here. Yeah. So you probably you probably heard all about the fires and things then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay. So, but maybe you should tell this story. But I, no, I will tell it because I have the microphone. <laughs> so, <I will. laughs> so this is a, such a nice story, and and this is where the fire comes through the monastery. Yeah, it's a big, big bushfire. It's the hottest day in Western Australia ever recorded at that time. Forty-six point something degrees. Yeah, that is really, really hot. And uh, so this, and this fire is coming on the hottest day ever. Huh? Yeah, and this is in the, towards the end of January. You had a long summer already, so everything is absolutely tinder dry, huh? ready to kind of blow up if a fire comes. Huh? And uh, the fire comes closer and closer, and eventually huh, they, uh, you know, they have to evacuate. Huh? And remember, this is 1991. They have almost just finished building up the monastery. The main hall is finished. The dana sala is finished. Uh, many of the kutis are ready. Uh, and Ajahn Brahm has just spent the previous eight years building that monastery. That's pretty much all he has done. Morning to night. Meditating, of course, in between. But building, building, building. When Ajahn Brahm does something, he dedicates 100% of his effort. Uh, he's actually very, he's a very impressive Impressive person, Ajahn Brahm. You may think now he just looks like this brown blob of, uh, you know, kind of overweight, all of that, yeah, very happy and jolly. But uh, he's, he's very deceptive because Ajahn Brahm doesn't have much ego. He doesn't kind of project, uh, you know, a strong sense of self or anything like that. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, 
But the way he dedicated himself to the monastery is absolutely astonishing. Yeah? I don't know if you've heard the story. The main hall of a monastery in Serpentine, for those of you who haven't been there, has a gable that goes up. And the peak of that gable is about eight or nine meters above ground. So it's quite, that's quite high, yeah, if you have been eight or nine meters up. At this point, there was no roof yet on that building. They had just been putting up all the bricks for this gable. And there was a few bricks missing at the very top of the gable. Yeah, very, very top of the gable, eight or nine meters up, however high it is. Of course, they didn't have a ladder. Yeah? <laughs> so Ajahn Brahm, he takes one bucket of mortar in one hand, a few bricks in the other hand, and he walks up. Yeah? You can, you can imagine the brick going up to the top. Yeah? Double brick. Yeah? So it's kind of that wide. And he walks up there, in one bucket in either hand, to the very top, lays the bricks. There's nothing on that side, nothing on that side. There's nine meters straight down on both sides. And walks up, lays the bricks, and walks down again. That's crazy, right? That's absolute madness. And I think he, he re recognizes now that it's absolutely crazy. But that was his dedication to the monastery. And he felt very confident because he has a very strong and clear mind. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know how I could never do that sort of thing. I would be, I would, <laughs> I, I don't like heights very much. I would kind of, it would be terrible for me. But uh, he did that. And that's kind of the dedication he had. And that's the dedication he had for many years beforehand. His entire life really revolved around building the monastery. He was not the main teacher. The main teacher was Ajahn Jagaro. He was like just the second monk. And the building work was what he did. And um, then comes the fire. And then they are told, you have to evacuate the monastery. Yeah, this is it. The monastery is going to burn down. And Ajahn Brahm said, at that moment, I was certain the whole monastery was going to burn down. And so they leave the monastery. And so I asked Ajahn Brahm, well, how, how did that feel when the whole monastery was going to burn down? And he said, well, at that moment, when I had just spent the previous eight years working day and night, seven days a week, all the time working on this, he said, I just let go of the monastery like that. Yeah? And he said, if I, once he had evacuated, he said, I was ready to come back the next day and start a building work from scratch uh, if the monastery was completely burnt down. Uh, that's like a superpower. Could you do that if your entire life's work went up in flames uh, and everything was destroyed? Would you be able to let go, bang, and say, I'm going to start from scratch again straight away? Uh, it's very hard. Yeah, It's really, really difficult because so much of your sense of self uh, is invested in that work. And so I asked Ajahn Brahm, well, how is that possible? How can you let go so completely of something that was so close to you for so many years? And he said, the way to do that, I never built that monastery for the result of having a monastery. I built the monastery because it was an act of kindness and generosity for the Buddhist world, for the Buddhist in WA, for myself, for whatever. That's why I did it. And that act of generosity, just because the monastery burns down, doesn't mean you can continue. You can start that act of generosity on the following day and continue. I didn't do it for the result. I did it because it was the right action. That's so beautiful. That's such a so marvelous way of thinking. And it's exactly the same thing that we should think in our ordinary life. Don't do things for the results. Don't do things because you're going to perform in as a you know, in whatever job you have or as a family member, the results are always going to be uncertain. It could burn down to the ground tomorrow, whatever you're doing. Burning down to the ground, being a metaphor for whatever failure there is in life. Uh, failures are always around the corner. 
You cannot control the results. They're always going to be uncertain. That's why you have, pro that might be the reason you have performance anxiety, because it's just out of control. Do things because they are right. Do things act an act as an act of kindness or generosity, doing something positive for the world. If you do it in that way, you can never fail. Yeah, because that has to do with your intention. You can never fail again. And what if the results don't come? You still have done the right thing. You still have acted out of kindness and generosity. You have still built up good qualities inside. You have still done something for even for people around you through that kindness, even though the result didn't come. Yeah, so you can never fail in that way. So that is where the path is. The path is in developing the spiritual qualities rather than in trying to control the external world, a world which is always going to be outside of control. Your monastery too will burn down one day. It's the nature that things burn down. Yeah, every monastery has to burn down. Your life's work will be destroyed at some point. Don't be surprised when it gets destroyed. This is just the nature of things. Anyway, okay. Dear Ajahn, you said yesterday that stream entry for a householder would be a variety. If householder is too old or sick or has too many responsibilities to become a monastic, that person possibly can't attain Sotapanna. This would be very disappointing here as we don't know what birth will we will get next or one may keep on roaming in samsara endlessly it is not impossible to become stream mentor again as a as a lay person it really depends again how you live your life if you live your life really really well you can it's possible yeah especially if you live approximately like a monastic do but you have to be really committed. It doesn't happen, you know, it doesn't happen easily, these things. The commitment required is often very great. Of course, it depends on the qualities you bring into this life. It depends on so many different things. So you can't really be absolute about these things one way or the other. So don't, but don't worry so much about that. Don't worry about these kind of results because you can't control them. Just do your very best. That is really the right way of thinking. If you do your very best, you will go as far as you possibly can on this path. If one of those, if you read stream entry, wonderful. If you don't, at least you have gone as far as you possibly can. Yeah, and then when you die, if you are very well prepared, the moment of death is often a very powerful spiritual moment because you have to let go of so much. Yeah, death, it's really staring you in your face that you have to let go. You understand. I have, you don't, you know, it's bleeding obvious that you have to let go when you're dying. Yeah. So that's why it is a powerful moment of, uh, for insight and also for samadhi and peace. Don't worry so much about, I, you know, oh, I have to become a stream entry. Often all of these... Uh, ideas of what you have to become that has become a hindrance on the path do your best yeah understand time is short understand the urgency every moment matters that is what you need to remember don't kind of keep this ideas of attainments too much in your mind it becomes a blockage okay Hi Ajahn, sometimes when monks are chanting, I experience something similar to an nimitta. Is it a nimitta? <laughs> uh, 
Um, maybe, yeah, something similar. Yeah, if it's very similar, it probably is. Uh, also, can you please give some guidance to help stabilize the nimitta? Thank you very much. Um, is it a nimitta? I, I don't know, but uh, you, you should know, be able to know by the qualities of what's happening in your mind. Are you feeling a lot of bliss? Are you feeling incredibly peaceful? Yeah, these would be the qualities that come with a real nimitta. Nimitta. Yeah, if it's a real nimitta, then, then that's what you would experience. And that's how you know whether you're on the right track. Go by the feelings rather than by the perception. Perceptions are so varied. People can see all kinds of things. People have very creative minds, as I mentioned before. They create all kinds of scenery in the mind. They create nimittas, all kinds of stuff. So go instead by what it feels like then you are more on the right track. It should be very blissful, it should be a very powerful experience, very peaceful and beautiful, then it is a real nimitta. So if you do experience that, it's marvelous. Yeah, it's wonderful, it's a really good starting, not, on, not a starting point, that you're already kind of going really well in your samadhi practice, so just uh, sit down and just uh, stay with that nim uh, nimitta. Yeah, stay with it uh, and just focus on it. Uh, don't do anything. Don't try to focus, just be with, the, uh, be with that sign, be with that nimitta. And as you stay with it, uh, then it may continue to brighten, become even more powerful. And that is often the entry gate to deep samadhi, to the jhana states and all of that. Uh. So just sit down and stay with it, stay with it uh, enjoy it, uh, yeah, and allow it all by itself to become even brighter and more powerful, gradually, gradually. Uh, and then one day you may be able to attain something very, very beautiful and profound as a consequence, going entirely beyond the sensory world. That's how you keep on developing it and brightening it. Dear Ajahn, thank you for coming to Melbourne to teach us. You are very welcome. I'm very glad to be here. And very nice to see you all again. Your retreats are something I look forward to. Okay, wow, that's really that's really nice. Okay, I've been enjoying Ajahn Brahma's letting be style of meditation. I imagine my thoughts and intentions stopping in the temporary stillness is such a relief. However, doubt arises as I then feel like I should watch the breath. I'm conflicted as I feel confused. When is the right time to watch the breath? Could you do a guided death meditation? That's a PS on the end. Um, you don't actually have to do watch the breath at all, really. You don't have to. And the breath can be very useful because the breath often helps to stabilize the mind on a particular object. That's kind of the point of it. It stops the thinking mind very often. That is kind of the idea of using the breath. But you don't have to. You know, if you ask Ajahn Brahm how he meditates, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever asked Ajahn Brahm how he meditates? Oh, yeah, you sit down. You close your eyes and you wait. That's it. It's the meditation. You wait, and then when you wait, things just happen. Yeah. But like when he says wait, it means really waiting. It means doing absolutely nothing. Yeah? And uh, so that's all he does. And then the bliss comes, the nimittas come, and bang, he's off into the prof really profound meditation. That's how he does it. Uh, and it's a very simple, very beautiful. For the majority of people, it doesn't work because our minds are not directed sufficiently in the right direction beforehand uh, so we need a bit more help and that's where the breath comes in uh. but you can i don't i don't know you so i don't know what your mind is like so you can test this thing you can just stay there let be 
let be don't do anything and see what happens uh, and if the happiness and bliss starts to rise all by itself in that way keep on keep on doing it uh, yeah keep on going like that uh, and maybe you don't need uh, the stabilizing um, properties of the breath uh, to bring you forward uh, but if you find that that doesn't work uh, yeah that it kind of stops or whatever uh, then it might be useful to use the breath to help you to gain access to that bliss yeah to stabilize the mind uh, to help you cut off the thinking which often kind of hinder you sometimes we need something else to guide the mind onto to ensure the mind doesn't kind of fall back on the habits of thinking or whatever and specifically and this said in the suttas that uh, the purpose of anapanasati is to cut off the thinking mind uh, yeah one of the purposes of anapanasati and then taking you to all the bliss and happiness and all of that uh, so uh, you have to experiment a little bit. It's impossible for me to say exactly what is right. Don't hold on too much to one particular method. Yeah, Especially if you find yourself stagnating, then try something else. See if you can find a different uh, angle on the meditation. Can we do a guided death meditation? Sure, we can do that. So I will put that over here. Please don't remove this. Dang, it's putting there. Yeah, I will squeeze it underneath so that... Uh, it's hard to remove. Actually, it isn't that hard to remove, but anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, dear Ajahn, please explain. When does the supramundane right view start working in the mind? When you become a stream enter, yeah? That's when you the supramundane right view uh, is established. Before that, it is not established. Does one have to fulfill mundane right view to be there? Um... Mundane right view is like, you know, I don't know if there really is such a thing as fulfillment of mundane right view. It is just that you try your best to have a view that aligns with the suttas, and you do that by reading the suttas, by understanding the word of the Buddha, and then based on that view, you then practice your meditation. And then when you get to a deep state of samadhi, the mind is able to see things according to reality, because why? Well, because in samadhi, first of all, you have already let go of a very large part of your sense of self. Secondly, the mind is very powerful, has a lot of bliss, and it's able to withstand the what seems like a shock. Yeah, it may seem it may seem scary to some to see non-self. So you need a very powerful mind to be able to do it. So at that point, you're able to have that insight, and then once you have that insight, then you have the kind of view of the stream enter yeah that's really how it happens it's not like you fulfill one and suddenly turns into the other it's more like you meditate and that power of the meditation enables the mind to access that deep understanding here that's really how it works and then you are established once and for all there okay i've got a few more questions i will just finish them off um Dear Ajahn, thank you for coming to the BSV to teach us all. I love my pet very much. How can I help him so that he doesn't have to become an animal in his next life? Thank you. We teach him the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, listen, dukkha. Yeah, now experience the dukkha. <laughs> so I think the best way to teach a pet is they don't really understand Dhamma, obviously, so you have to just be kind, yeah, be kind to the pet. Uh, and I think that sometimes that kindness, it does something, yeah, it does something special to the uh, any kind of mind. Uh, you feel more at ease, you feel more relaxed, uh, it may build up good qualities in the other 
in the in the animal. It's just like when you treat people with kindness in the world, they often become kinder. If you look for the good qualities in other people, those qualities start to blossom. Yeah, it's almost like you bring out good qualities by looking at good qualities in other people. If you fault find with others, uh, you bring out the fault in other people. It's almost as if they, don't, they couldn't care less anymore because you're just seeing faults in them any, in any way. Uh, but if you see the good qualities, it's almost as if people want to live up to your trust uh, in the good qualities. Uh, and they become better people as a consequence. Uh, and I think it works the same with animals. Uh, if you're kind, uh, if you see the good qualities in your dog or cat or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Oh, dog. Yeah, what a wonderful pet you are. I want and don't you know and and if the dog does something bad, uh, treat it with kindness still. Uh, yeah. Oh, please don't do that. Uh, that is not appropriate. I don't know how how to treat a dog. I'm maybe just making it up. But never really be never have ill will to your animals. Just like you probably wouldn't want to have it towards human beings. Uh, and I think this trust and this kindness that has an impact on the mind uh, that may eventually. May, I don't, it depends on the comma, of course, but it may actually lead to a good rebirth as a consequence. Being reborn as a pet in a good Buddhist family is pretty fortunate. Yeah, you can't, you don't get much higher than that on the animal kind of scale of things. So you're probably fairly close to being reborn as a human anyway. So you just need that extra little oomph, yeah, little extra little kindness from you, and that may be what happens. I think that's the best you can do. And then you just have to hope. And then when the pet dies, often when the pet dies, it will be in the kind of intermediate stage before it goes to the next rebirth properly. At that point also, do something, do act of kindness for your pet. Maybe at that point, when they are released from the animal body, they will be more able to understand your actions. So pet, Fido, yeah, Fido, are you there? <laughs> kind of the classic dog's name. Fido, are you in there? Uh, if you are if you are there, if you can hear me, uh, I'm doing this act of generosity for you, uh, yeah. And then maybe the dog feels, wow, that is so kind, uh, yeah. And then maybe as a consequence, the dog gets reborn in the happy realm because of that. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I think that's sometimes the best we can do. Dear Ajahn, if you have time, kindly teach us the Maha Tanha Kaya Sutta. Right, we don't have time. Sorry. <laughs> this is a long sutta. It's about 10 pages in the English. It is full of dependent origination, back and forth. It will take me about 10 days, morning and evening and midday and more, to teach that sutta. It's a very long one. I am... Um, I have taught dependent origination before, and it's basically about that. So if you want to listen to some of those earlier talks, uh, you are very welcome to do so. We did a workshop on dependent origination in Perth. I did that together with another monk quite recently. Uh, and you can listen to those teachings if you like. Uh, it is very interesting. Dependent origination doesn't have to be just a theoretical framework. Uh, it also has many practical consequences. Uh, so check that out first of all. And if you still want me to teach the Maha Tanha Sankhya Sutta, then ask me again at a time when I have more time. When is that? Uh, probably never. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see what, see what happens. Yeah, But we can maybe do a dependent origination one more time down the track, but I've been doing it quite a bit recently, so probably um, probably be a while before we do it. I will see what happens. Who knows? Things are uncertain, as they say. Can Ajahn please give us some pointers about walking meditation? Okay, so walking meditation can be done in many different ways. 
And uh, sometimes one of the ways, one of the things that I like about walking meditation is to use it more for reflection. Uh, because when the body is moving, it is more natural to reflect, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, People are different, but that's my experience. So you walk back and forth, uh, and sometimes you can just reflect on the suit as we have been doing uh, what it, what they mean to you, how you can apply them in your own life. Yeah, What are the problems that you find in your own life that you want to deal with? And these kind of things. This is very useful. I always say to people that when you read the suttas, the Buddha always says we should reflect on them afterwards to internalize the meaning, to actually understand what is going on. If you just read it and then you don't reflect on it, you're, it's almost like you are not taking the full uh, opportunity to uh, internalize the meaning of this beautiful teaching. So, so uh, that is one way, and I think that's really nice. Uh, I remember once, many years ago, I asked a quite a famous Burmese monk. I said to him, "Well, you know, how do you how do you do walking meditation, or, or, or whether he just told, spoke, whatever?" He says that when he does, he just walks back and forth, doesn't do anything. Uh, he just has general awareness uh, of his mental state. Uh, yeah. It can also be very useful if you know your mind, you know your mental state, and your job is to purify your mind. That's really all you have to do sometimes. So you get to know yourself. Okay, these are my defilements. This is where I have a problem. You probably know that already. But then you can work on purifying those things as you walk back and forth. That, Or sometimes you can just chill. Yeah, After sitting here all day and you kind of feel a bit stiff or whatever, you want to go out, you just walk back and forth. Enjoy the peace, enjoying the good company. Just having a good time walking back and forth. Yeah, then you can do metta while you walk. Uh, focus in the metta towards specific people. You can't take it all that deeply, so it really depends on what you do, depends on what you do with your metta meditation. But you can establish some positive thoughts, yeah, in while walking. And if you're able to do that, then come in afterwards and sit down. You may have a beautiful meditation as a consequence. So you can do some metta meditation, yeah? Seeing the good qualities in the people around you, uh, rejoicing in having such marvelous kalanamittas uh, as you have here at the BSV, both monastic and lay, uh, having the Buddha as your teacher. Uh, wow! Uh, and you start to feel, start to uh, bliss out by thinking in the right way. Uh, yeah, and this is how you can use reflection to kind of give rise to beautiful things in your mind. Metta, uh, Buddha Nusati, whatever it is, that kind of... Um, uh, makes your mind move in the right direction. You can do death contemplation while you also while you do walking meditation. Yeah. All of these things. You can do so many things. Yeah. You can as long as you use your mind in line with the Dhamma, you're okay. The last thing that you can do, which is the traditional thing, is to feel the touch of your feet while you do walking meditation. This is kind of the classical thing, but I don't know. I wouldn't always recommend that. I mean, sometimes it depends on how your sitting meditation is going. If your sitting meditation is going really, really well, then uh, sometimes you want to do something else afterwards. Uh, yeah, you come out of your meditation. It doesn't feel natural to extend that into more samatha, so you do something different. Uh, and if your sitting meditation is not uh, uh, not going so well, uh, then trying even more samatha it may may not be the right thing. Uh, but there may be times when it is right to do walking meditation in the sense of feeling the feet, yeah, and doing that. Uh, Ajahn Brahm loves to talk about doing that because I did quite a bit of walking meditation in Thailand, uh, and he always talks about getting really powerful results during during walking meditation, yeah, where the whole world kind of explodes into a kaleidoscope of colors and shapes. Uh, this one of mine becomes incredibly peaceful uh, while you walk. Uh, 
And uh, I'm sure I've told this before, but uh, you know, this is why Ajahn Brahm loves concrete so much, yeah? Because he's, when Ajahn Brahm sees concrete, he sees a walking meditation path which explodes into color and shapes. So in our monastery, our monastery in Perth has the most concrete paths in the entire world. And no other monastery has many concrete paths as we have in our monastery here. So we say to Ajahn, can we maybe no need to have concrete? Oh no, it's good to have concrete. It's kind of safe and solid. Yeah, We know we kind of will be okay if the fire comes along. So you can do that as well, yeah? So experiment a little bit. Don't be afraid. You don't have to do anything particular, yeah? You don't have to kind of, uh, don't push yourself too much. Do what you enjoy. Enjoyment is so important in meditation practice. Uh, don't push yourself too hard. Uh, don't compete with the Joneses. Uh, don't compete with anyone, uh, yeah? Whatever they are, just do what works for you, uh, what brings you forward, uh, what advances your practice, uh, what develops your mind in the right way. Okay, everyone, uh, that's it for tonight. Uh, so uh, again, please have a good rest and we will see you again back tomorrow morning. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha uh, for the, as the last thing we do.